Well, may the Lord be with you and bless you. It is good to be uh, in his house tonight, gathering together and singing, being reminded that as we come uh, to the Lord, there are 10,000 charms. Isn't that a, a lovely line in that verse? Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, and what we find when we come to him. And if, having come, we can sing that, right? It is well. It is well. Well, if you have your Bibles with you tonight, I want to look at together uh, the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah uh, chapter 52, verse 13. <clears throat> when you find your place, let me invite you just to stand in the honoring of the reading of God's word. <clears throat> begin reading of verse 13, read down to the end of chapter 53 tonight. The Bible says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you at his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crucified or crushed for our iniquities and upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil among the strong because He poured his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
sip. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this evening. We can gather together tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word, infallible, inspired, inerrant, living and active. We thank you for this great revelation, this great explanation and commentary on the cross of Christ. And Father, I pray as we come tonight, even considering this passage together, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the, the wonders of your word. Lord, we, we come anticipating to hear from you. And I pray that you would speak through the distractions in our minds and in our lives going on now, and that you would, what I believe you have purposed for us to do in this passage, and that is take another look at, at your servant. So I pray that you would do that tonight and, and let that look, let that gaze at him have its perfect work in us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I was in a small group study years ago, and uh, the, the gentleman leading the study was commenting on Romans 3.26. No need to turn there. At the end of that verse, as Paul is trying to describe the gospel and how God worked all this out, he speaks of God being both the just one and the justifier. And the gentleman looked to me and another pastor that was in the group, and he said, well, maybe these men can uh, unravel that mystery for you. And I was taken back by the statement for several reasons. One, I knew the gentleman had went to Bible college, and I thought he ought to have been adequately equipped to answer that question. Two, I knew the gentleman had been raised in church all of his life, and and the mystery and that great truth of God both being just and the justifier is is really elementary to the Christian faith. And I realize that is not always the case, and we don't always put the pieces together and it is good to be reminded of these things well the bible study in case you're wondering how it went i think it went okay as we tried to explain it the best we could but what we see in this passage tonight is god unraveling that mystery for us as we consider uh, this section of scripture i mentioned last week the joy and the the peace that is experienced when a man is right with his maker or when a woman is right with her creator. Now, the question that lingers is how can it be that way? He is a holy God and far removed from sinners and we, uh, we are sinful. How can we live in fellowship and communion with God? And, and so what God does through his word is he lays out the answer to that. There's Several possibilities if we were just to ask ourselves, how can this be? One is we could change God. We could have communion with God if God was different than who he is, but that's impossible. We know the Bible says he does not change. Praise God for that revelation. We have tried, but it is hopeless. We've made gods after our own light and after our own image. Or we could be holy ourselves. We could change ourselves. We could redeem ourselves in some sort of way and go through some kind of reformation to where we make ourselves better, to where God can be in fellowship with us. But 
that too is futile, as you know, and your New Year's resolution, they don't last very long. The Bible says, can a leopard change his spots? Well, thirdly, God could just overlook our sins and enter into fellowship with us. That's possible, but that would be a miscarriage of justice, wouldn't it? To throw away the idea of right and wrong and consequences of actions and even his promise to Adam, the day you sin, you will surely die. Well, the fourth possible option, God could just simply forgive you. That again would push the integrity of justice to some degree, but it does ask the question, or at least present the question, on what basis would he forgive you? It is here that we seek to hear that answer from God himself. Isaiah 52 and 53 is one among several servant psalms in the book of Isaiah. These are poems and declarations about God's servant who will come, his Messiah and what he will do. This one specifically is a picture of the suffering servant. As you know as we read through this. And it is such a vivid commentary on what we find in the New Testament. It is remarkable. As we read through this in our reading. And as we'll see uh, walking through this tonight. It is almost as if Isaiah is looking back at the cross. Not looking towards it. 700 years before Jesus ever walked the earth, Isaiah is writing this as if the events had taken place and he's just giving a news commentary at uh, Jerusalem Times of what went on. What a glorious reminder of the nature of Scripture, isn't it? Jesus on his resurrection told them repeatedly, we find in Luke, uh, that Scripture needed to be fulfilled. All things concerning him In the Old Testament, what we hold in our hand is a supernatural book that God can declare the end from the beginning. Should not surprise us that he can give us a vivid description of what Jesus is going to do at Calvary. And that is exactly what this is a commentary of, isn't it? We see in the Gospels a... Uh, the events as they unfold, we read of the narratives and the betrayal and all the things that take place. And, and yet it is here in the Old Testament that we have a clear meaning behind it all. As if God is saying, what will come about, let me just go ahead and tell you what I'm going to do beforehand and the significance of it when it takes place. Well, the beating and the whipping and the the abuse, the cross, the piercing, all of those things God is telling us here in Isaiah and the Old Testament before they ever took place, this is why all this is significant. In Psalms 22, we begin that with that cry of dereliction, that that cry of abandonment as he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he, he goes through his, almost as if the Messiah is giving his personal experience of this crucifixion. Here we come and see God's perspective and the onlookers. It is set within the context of God who will restore Jerusalem and Zion. In Isaiah 52, he begins that way. Awake and wake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful gates, O Jerusalem, the whole city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and unclean. He is speaking of this kind of restoration that will take place of his people. 
In fact, it is such a beautiful news of God coming and bringing restoration and and life to his people that he says in verse number 7, which Paul brings into the New Testament, as you recall, look at it with me, 52.7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, what? Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they will lift up their voices together. They will sing for joy. Their eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Now break forth together into singing your waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. What about her sin and the violence and the corruption? Verse number 10, he goes further to say, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. It's like the old expression, just wait until God flexes, till he bears his arm of power and might and brings deliverance himself. The servant psalm enters in in from that, reminding us that the means by which he will bring about this great restoration and victory will be through his servant. Of course, the Jewish people as a whole, religiously speaking, look at this psalm as a depiction of their story. Israel as a nation being this great suffering servant in their polite in human history. In fact, Isaiah 53 is not included in their readings on the Sabbath. And some suggest it was a, an illegal chapter in the Bible. I don't think that's true. One writer said this. He said, well, there was just no parallel to any comments in the Pentateuch. After all, if you're going to read the prophets, they must parallel with uh, the writings of the Pentateuch. And so they just kind of miss this one. But as you and I can clearly see, it is a different servant that God has in mind than the nation of Israel. It is his servant, his holy servant. And let's look at it together, beginning in verse number 13. It is Jesus Christ who will act wisely and who will prosper. In fact, what we find as we look at this uh, verse number 13 and the exalted servant, the exalted one. And he begins this with a cry of attention as if he wants to grab you by your shirt collar and say, pay attention to this. Or in our day, put down your phone and look at me in the eye and listen to what I'm saying to you because this is important. It's not just a passing phrase. He begins this with an exclamation. He wants us to pay attention. He wants us to see something and, and to know something, to look and consider. And so he begins with his statement, behold. And how often we need that exclamation by the Holy Spirit in our hearts as we enter into his word. We just hum through it and, and, and just kind of make our way through it. And there are moments where, where we need to be awakened out of our sleep and pay attention. I can tell you, preaching For years, there's moments where you want to just say, stop the message and say, behold, because uh, you're like the man in the window who falls out of sleep. 
But God wants us to wake up and listen. Not only because the fact that we ought to, but because of the one who is speaking. And we believe all scripture is God's word. It's inspired by God. And he speaks to us in many different ways through his word. Sometimes through the pen of Paul. Sometimes through Isaiah. But here he he breaks through their sermon and their writing. And he speaks to us directly saying, this is my servant. And so we need to wake up just for the fact that it is God himself who's speaking to us. There are moments in life where the subject and the situation is serious. We fight against that sleepiness, whether it's the literal tiredness of our body or the sleepiness of our spiritual state, that we become dull, that we would be shaken out of that. God would remind us, let us consider who is speaking here, my servant, but not only who is speaking, but but the content of what he is saying, look at my servant. How often we go to Bible studies and we ask the first question after we read it, what does this mean to me? And it's not a bad, and I don't want to get on the bandwagon of throwing that out the window. We do ask ourselves what the meaning of a passage is, but there are moments where we are meant to sit back and just consider, and this is one of those moments. Our immediate application is to pay attention and consider exactly what God is saying. Look at him and see him. And he says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He will be high and lifted up and exalted. It's almost as if God is telling us that there are men that are great men. Kings that are greater than them, angels that are greater than them, but my servant will be above all of them, high and lifted up. uh, There's that continual building on the phrase to magnify that he will be great, exceedingly great. The beautiful thing about writing now that if you are too wordy, your spell checker and all that stuff will will underline it and say you need to take all of that out and yet the bible is being what we would say necessarily wordy reminding us of the magnitude of his servant and who he is consider him and yet what a striking way to begin a narrative begin a story beginning a testimony or an explanation of the death of jesus christ We come on Good Friday to to consider this Messiah, this servant of God who was crucified. And, And as we do that, we begin with verse number 13 of considering his exaltation. And so now I want us to consider his humiliation. Verse number 14. Many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond any human semblance, his form beyond that of a children of mankind. And I know it's hard to pull you into these kind of conversations, but don't you think that's a, a very striking thing to say after behold my high and lifted up exalted servant? 
after God has already spoken earlier in 52 about his mighty arm being bared and him bringing deliverance and salvation, we would almost begin verse number 13 thinking 14 would follow with military exploits or something great or magnificent, campaign of some sort, the parting of the Red Sea, something amazing. And and it is amazing, but not in the way we would think. but almost 180 degrees than how you and I would picture it. He brings us to the humiliation. Instead of describing him in the language of Isaiah 40, where he is a a king above all kings and the nations are like a drop in a bucket to him. They're like grasshoppers. What are they to this amazing God? He says, no, this exalted one, this lifted up one is the one who was humiliated and this Philippians 2 as you know that this one whom he is presenting in front of us would go through deep and dark valleys unimaginable pain and sorrow on his path to glory and that makes his humiliation even more hard to consider more astonishing when you think this is the very one that's mentioned in Isaiah 6 where the burning ones are literally crying out before him, before his incarnation, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That upon his throne, the only thing going on in his presence is him and his glory and his majesty. And here we find him at such a a low state such a humble state that the writer says we are astonished at him, not because of his greatness, but because of the awfulness of his appearance. It was so marred beyond any human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was beaten to such a state, abused to such a state, that as we looked at him, we did not see the dignity of humanity. Now, there's no way to fathom it, but we do see people who have given themselves to uh, drugs or have been abused to such a state or in such a a, a deplorable state that we almost see them as animalistic instead of human. It's almost as if we naturally, as he'll say later on, have to turn our face. What we have presented to us in this humbled servant, this suffering servant is one who is like a mauled animal. He explains this humility in chapter number 53. Look at it with me through several paragraphs. Verses 1 through 3, he describes him as the despised one. Again, beginning this, who has believed what he has heard from us? This is almost astonishing. Who Who could even believe this? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he will grow up before him like a young plant. Like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Commentators disagree about the exact nature of this wording, whether he's speaking of his humble estate or his poverty or or out of due season. Some suggest here this root out of dry ground is that reference to Isaiah 11, that root that will come up referring to the seed of of Jesse, that offshoot of Jesse coming. And 
and whatever it means, it brings us to this one where we would not pick him. He's not a king of our own making or one we would choose. He's not beautiful or attractive. He he doesn't have that magnetic personality where we would be drawn to him because of what we see in a particular way. He probably looked like a, a normal man would look in his day. It is amazing when you read through Saul's being anointed king how much attention is given to his physical features and his size and his height and his strength. And yet God does not choose based upon the outer appearance of man. What God gave Israel was a king that they wanted, a king that they would follow, a king that they would be attracted to. Everything that humanity, mankind had to offer, he gave to them in Saul. And yet he still looked for a king after his own heart and found in David. Or you might be taken to Absalom where the Bible said from the from the his feet to the top of his head was perfect. People were drawn to him, attracted to him. He was, uh, it was attractive in that way, and yet he was wicked. He was a man, walked among his own people, and they were not drawn to him. They did not see his, the beauty of him. They did not desire him. In fact, he goes on to emphasize this in verse number 3, the outcome of that. He was despised and rejected by men. We've known that and we read that in the Gospels that as he was first beaten to satisfy the Jews and then brought to them again, Pilate trying to wiggle out of this whole putting Jesus to death thing after his wife tells him to have nothing to do with this man, he says, I know what I'll do. I'll I'll go get one of the worst guys we got in the prison and I'll put them together and surely... Seeing a man who's been beaten and mocked and treated as such that he had, he's, he's been punished and, and surely at looking at his state presented him in a murderer and a thief and an insurrectionist, surely they will pick Jesus. But Pilate could not wiggle out of his decision. He could not throw off the plan of God because as he was presented to the people, they chose the liar and they chose the thief and they chose the murderer rejecting him. What will I do with him? And you know the words, church, crucify him. He would be a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief as one from whom men would hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not, mocked by the multitude as he hung there on the cross, even in the midst of his suffering saying save yourself and all the other things that were said to him there was no esteem for him no pity for him not even not even pity for him being a man a human not only do we see it as the despised one he goes on and speaks about the punished servant verse number four surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we seemed stricken beaten by God, afflicted. We've seen all that he went through, the commentator saying there, as if he's at the cross, and they're saying, this is the product of the work of God and all the strikes and blows that he received was by God himself. He was a man afflicted, pierced for our transgression, both the nails and the spear. 
presented to him as his reward, crushed and chastised or judged, he says in verse number five, and given wounds or stripes or scourging, if you have the New American Standard Bible. And it was customary, as you know, for Rome to put him up against to the whipping post. Most criminals sentenced to death and to flog them, beat them severely with the whips, ripping open their flesh. He was a man who was punished severely. In fact, so much so, verse number 7 through verse number 9 says the outcome of this was he was a one who was cut off from the land of the living. It was not enough just to punish him. It was not enough just for him to be beaten with stripes and to go all that he went through. He gave his back to the crowd. He says in Isaiah 50, it was not enough for that. It would go to the lowest point where they would take his life from him. And yet they did not take anything. We know the Bible says he laid it down. In fact, verse number seven is so amazing, isn't it? Look at it with me. This obedient servant He was oppressed and afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Do you remember what he told Peter? Peter pulls out his sword and seeks to take on an army by himself. And he says, don't you know that I must drink the cup that the father's given me? Don't you think that I don't have the authority or don't you know that I have the authority to call down legions of angels to deliver me? Put your sword up, Peter. Out of all that he went through, at the touch of his fingers, so to speak, at the very utterance of his voice, at the very inclination of his will, he could have called down legions of angels and no doubt the created beings were on call, waiting for the word to say enough is enough and to bring retribution to mankind for the abuse that they did upon the one in whom they have worshipped and created them. And yet as he goes forward, passively he enters in, obeying the Father, displaying those great words, not my will but thine be done. Isn't that remarkable? When we, if we could, remove the suffering in our life and a word, the flick of our wrist or snap of our fingers, we would remove ourselves as quickly as we could from it. That would be natural for us. And yet in this whole grand scheme of all that he went through, uh, the Bible says he was the obedient servant. Not opening his mouth and like a lamb that is led before slaughter, like sheep that is before his shears aside. So he opened not himself, giving himself completely and fully over to the judgment of God. And that judgment would lead him to being cut off in the prime of his life, 33 and a half years old. Out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, crucified with sinners, counted as among them, buried in a borrowed tomb, 
And notice what he says at the end of verse number nine. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, all of this was all of this was judgment. All of this was a punishment that he did not deserve. We see the humbled servant becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, Paul says in Philippians 2. No doubt, joining together Isaiah 53 and the gospel narratives, but I want you to see also the vindicated servant. Verse 15 says in chapter 52, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they do not hear they understand. That which we might find as the ultimate defeat and destruction will be the very thing that will bring about his universal and global global glory, nations of the earth, kings of the earth will hear and they will shut their mouths because of him. What fury you and I have had at the death of those who were murdered unjustly. We feel it somewhat even reading the gospel narratives and we ought to, shouldn't we? As we read what happened to him, the mock trial and all that he went through as they pulled out his beard and spat in his face, something of a a righteous indignation that swells up within us. And almost as if you could read it for the very first time in the midst of reading it, crying out as if you were watching some horrific event saying, stop it, put an end to all of this. Don't you see what you're doing? And yet the father, we read in verse number 10, it was pleasing to him. It was the will of the father to crush him. He has put him to grief. What could make the father do such a thing? To bring his servant, his anointed one to such a state, to go through such an amazing Amazing things like this. We read that in the New Testament. Romans 5 is a great place to go, isn't it? Some people would die for a righteous man. They would dare die. But who would die for the ungodly? But this is the way God has displayed his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Rejected and abused innocent, treated as a wild animal, hated and despised. And yet in all of this, it was the will of the Father. There's two things I think in that. And that is, it pleased the Father to offer him up. Not because he's a sadist. Not because he likes judgment. Not because the father likes to hurt his son. He loves the son and has always loved the son with unimaginable love that you and I could never fathom together with him from eternity past in eternity future. All that he is doing and all that he will do to bring glory to the son. If you read Revelation, you come back to that reality. He loves his son 
In fact, our own comfort in His love for us is rooted in that love for the Son. So why does the Father take pleasure? And why is His will put in this way to where His own Son would be crushed to such a thing? Because this, this will prosper. We'll see it more in just a moment, but the other notice of that is the fact that we ourselves are brought into this narrative in an unusual fashion. It's almost as if we're brought back to that that Old Testament sacrificial system and as the worshiper would bring his animal before God to be offered up and the priest, he would put his hand on the head of that animal and it would signify transferring his guilt upon to this innocent animal. And then they would slit that animal's throat and, and that animal would face the judgment and the consequences of that worshiper's sin and he would go away worshiping God for his grace and provision. But the Bible says that the blood of bulls and goats was never sufficient enough to take away our sin It was only pointing us to something else and it's this something else in Jesus Christ in which we place our hand on and and our guilt becomes his. His innocence becomes ours. Notice back with me in verse number four as you, I intentionally left these words out. It is our grief that he carried. It is our sorrows And while we esteemed him judged and condemned by God, he was going through this not on his own benefit, not because of his own violence or his own guilt, but because of ours. He was pierced not for his transgressions, but for your transgressions, for my transgressions. He was crushed under the weight of the judgment of God and and the consequences of our iniquity. The Bible says upon him he was punished by his father so that you and I might have peace and so that we may be healed through the stripes as they furrowed his back like a plow. In fact, verse number 6 sums this up and Paul brings this into the New Testament, the book of Romans, doesn't he? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That is our guilt and our responsibility. And yet the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so when we picture him on the cross, we picture him bearing the consequences of our rebellion. Stricken for the transgression at the end of verse number 8 of my people. Murdered brutally, woefully, wrongfully murdered for the sins of someone else. What a radical idea that is. That God would provide a substitute. His very own servant, the only innocent human being that ever existed, exhibiting what it means to fully embody the law of God, always loving the Father, always in unity and fellowship with the Father, obeying the Father's will, uh, both in his mind, intents, and heart, and in his actions, and always loving his neighbor as he ought to in reflection of that perfect righteousness. And he would be treated as the worst of worst sinners because, because the worst of worst sinners needed 
a sacrifice. But notice the vindication in verse number 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see. Isn't that wonderful? What does that mean? Well, the one who had died for our sins will not remain in that state, but he will rise again. He will see the fruit of his labor, the fruit of his work, the fruit of his offering. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand because his will was not just to crush the son, but the will was to through the son. And verse number 11, make many to be accounted as righteous. It was the will of the Father to offer up the Son on the cross and that through offering up His Son on the cross that He would make provision for us to cleanse us, to declare us righteous before Him, to bring us into fellowship with Him. And so when we began this, we looked at different ways that that we might be in fellowship or communion with God. And that last one, maybe God could just forgive us for our guilt. And that's exactly what Isaiah is saying God has done. But it was not a cheap forgiveness. It was a real, heartfelt, substantial, deep, and even painful forgiveness. Not in the work that we could do. In fact, we're still here just taking it all in. This is a reminder when Jesus said it is finished, that this declaration that he will prosper is right right at hand in just two days. In fact, he goes on and says, out of the anguish of his soul he shall be satisfied and by knowledge the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Who's the many? Well, could say the elect of God. That may leave us kind of confused as sometimes for some of us. We may wonder what that means. Or we could say those who have believed his report. To those whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. Christ, the exalted one, was he who was abased to such a low place. So that as he again enters into the throne room, victorious over death, defeating Satan And death, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, he enters in not just with victory, but with spoil from that victory. That's what he says in verse number 12. I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, but his spoil is not in gold and pearls and diamonds and all the things that we think of. His spoil is the enemies of God. His spoil is those who are captive in vain philosophies. His spoil is those who are in slavery to sin and death. He, he brings them with him. That is you and I if you put your faith and trust in him. Numbered with the transgressors, he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And dear friends, God invites us in verse number 13 to look at his servant. And as we look at his servant, we're brought again to be reminded of the words of the Lord at the Lord's Supper, aren't we? 
Take ye, this is my body, which is broken for you. Drink, this is the blood of the new covenant. My blood, which was poured out for you. The gospel narratives gives us all the details and the events surrounding this. But here in Isaiah, he brings us back to really the commentary, what it means. And it means this, that God has provided a substitute. God has provided a substitute for our sins. He is just and that he will not clear the guilty. But he is the justifier in that he has taken the guilt of the guilty and put it on his only begotten son. You know, we've been going through John 6, haven't we? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. What, what do you mean by all that? But isn't this exactly what he means? That in my body, me coming to earth, I came for this very purpose that my life could be poured out so that you might have everlasting life. Dear friends, as we gather here tonight, Entering into taking Lord's Supper together, it does not save us. We know that communion does not. But boy, what a what a needful reminder it is of exactly what Christ did for us. But maybe you've come here tonight and you have still wondered, and you're still outside of Christ. You still wondered who He is and what all this stuff is about. That's what it's about. You and I in great need. And in desperation and in our offense, he, he puts our guilt on his only begotten son. And that through that one, through the son, you might have everlasting life. Judgment will be met out for every iniquity and every sin. Either by us or by the Lord's servant. And the day is the day in which we either turn to him for his provision or we settle to deal with the matter ourselves. I would not let this evening go by without having that taken care of. Bow with me. Word of prayer. I want to ask the Lord to come forward as we prepare for communion. Let me give you a moment of silence as we just think about this day, think about God's word and what he said to you. This is a time of uh, a time of worship. It's also a time of, of reflection in our own lives and preparing our own hearts. I hope you've been doing that all day, but, but maybe the Lord is dealing with your heart and there's things you need to take care of. Turn to Him and, and, and submit those things to Him. Repent of before Him before we take communion together. And Lord, won't you play a, a song for us and let's take a moment of silence. Dear Heavenly Father, what... What good news the gospel is. What amazing, astonishing words that you have given to us to consider tonight and contemplate. What a great sacrifice you set for us and great arm of salvation, how your ways are beyond our ways, how your thoughts are beyond our thoughts. Who could have ever worked this out but you? Father, we pray even as we come tonight thinking about taking the Lord's Supper together and preparing our hearts as we just take this season in our calendar that we set aside to just think about Christ in a specific way in his death and resurrection. I pray that you would 
Lord, fill us in our minds with worship, both tonight and and throughout this weekend, Saturday, Sunday, as we come together again, the Lord's on the Lord's day, thinking of His resurrection. And Father, I pray tonight that if there is anyone here that does not know You, that even even now, Lord, considering what a great cost and great display of love You've shown for us, enemies. And yet you gave such a a precious gift. What hope in our despair. I pray that even even now they would call on you and would not rest tonight until that matter is settled, Lord. God, I pray for us who know you. And as we come tonight, we not only remember your death and resurrection to your son returns, but we also... And remembering the cost of our salvation, consecrate ourselves again as your servants. I pray that would be our case as we even rededicate our lives in some fashion. Lord, what joy it is to stand and have fellowship together in many ways that we enjoy that fellowship, but what unspeakable joy it is to have fellowship in the Lord and to know that there's a fellowship, there's a belonging, there's a togetherness that is unconquerable. And so we just praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.